Hello, David Starkey. Lovely Hello. to see you. Lovely to see you. Um, David Starkey is, of course, a historian of note, primarily of the Tudor period in England, but uh, a man of uh, many other insights into other periods of English and British history. Um, he's a dear friend of uh, many years, and uh, recently we exchanged a few emails about human progress and some very interesting um, differences between us and our outlook on human progress have emerged. So I thought, why not do a podcast about the things that we agree on, the things that we dis disagree on, uh, the importance of free speech, the importance of studying history and that sort of thing. So uh, thanks for uh, having me. Where are you? Uh, I am in, uh, I'm outside London, uh, in a tiny village, in fact, outside Canterbury. So I'm to the southeast of London in Kent, which is known as the Garden of England. And uh, I look outside and there's a very beautiful garden, which is my bit of the Garden of Kent. And it's, uh, it's an early 18th century house. Uh, in America, it, you would call it colonial. Uh, and it's a kind of house that you will find in Georgetown. Um, it's exact contemporaries. You will find this kind of version, which has got relatively low ceilings and originally had very big fireplaces. In other words, built for a cold climate, uh, as America was. Um, uh, you'll find it in country districts like this. It's called The Red House because it's built out of very bright red brick. Very good. Now, presumably, the, the, presumably the ceilings are so low because people used to be much shorter in the past. Uh, that's not true. I mean, people there were very <laughs> wide variations of height then as now. Um, Henry VIII, we were talking about my expertise in the Tudors. Henry VIII is six foot one inches tall. Um, Edward IV, where, who was his grandfather, when they married his, when they married, when they measured his skeleton in the 18th century, after, of course, as the, 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 the post-mortem shrinkage and whatever, his skeleton was still six feet, four inches tall. Right, uh, but on was, average, on average, people were shorter. Probably, which, and you're now going to talk about progress. <laughs> Uh, do you see how you see how well, I, I introduce? Oh, I can see how you think. The, the degree of primitivism is astonishing uh, because, <laughs> of course, uh, what happens is that people get shorter after the 16th century. People are probably in their west at their shortest at their shortest in the industrial towns of the 19th century, with wretched diet, appalling accommodation, filthy atmosphere. Uh, those in country districts tended to be much bigger and stronger, which is why the army recruits there. Mm -hmm. uh, in other words, these things are not linear at right. all. That's and of course, they, they vary with class, they vary, uh, they vary with genetic history. So, for example, um, I mentioned Henry VIII. On one side of his family, they're giants, the English royal house. Most of them are massive. On the other hand, on his grandmother's side, and on Lady Margaret Beaufort's side, um, she is small, petite, quite wizened, um, and um, a very, very different sort of facial structure. Um, the main royal house, well, it looks a bit like Prince Harry, but imagine Harry as a real rugby player with muscles and broad shoulders. Um, but that same sort of strawberry and cream complexion, reddish hair, um, and appetites and temper to go with the red hair and, 
<laughs> and the bill. So these things, they, in other words, the past, the past is is not a simple pattern. It's intensely variable. Yes, but I think it's. Yeah, let's it's very down the idea of progress. Let's yeah. let's, let's 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 demarcate the differences between us. Okay, podcast, you begin. Well, um, so human progress is uh, really retrospective. Um, the way that I look at it, I compare today with the past. I don't compare progress with some sort of a utopian future <laughs> that some college kid has imagined where there are no problems and everybody's satisfied. The, I'm making a very simple point that compared to human history, on uh, most aspects of human well-being, people are much better off today than they were in the past. Do you disagree with that? Not for one second. It is okay. self-evidently true. If you look at the whole of our control of the material world in that old biblical phrase, man as the master, the man as the master of nature, uh, man as the sovereign of the animal universe. We have never established such control so completely with such effect, never, ever. If you look in in the history of medicine, if you look in 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 the history of transportation, if you look in the history of food supply, all of these things manifestly what you say is true. If you look at the objective world, in other words, the world outside man. Okay. Now, this progress, and I think it's really very important to uh, you talking about the past, the the non-utopian version of. What I think is very important is to understand how recent and how dramatic it is. In other words, there hasn't been a gradual improvement. Uh, there, there is, as you know, the Kuhnian theory of scientific change, which is that it tends to be cataclysmic as you shift from one paradigm to another. I think the, this, this control of the material environment has been similarly in terms of human history, it's the last five minutes. We are real, although the, the standard view of the Middle Ages is primitive and all the rest of it won't do. Uh, and uh, if you look, for example, at the uh, Middle Ages in terms of engineering, it's much more sophisticated than Rome. The Middle Ages had the wheeled plow, which the Romans didn't. They'd slaves, it made it easier. And the Middle Ages, if you compare for example, the engineering skill, we'll keep on coming back to the Tudors, uh, the engineering skill of something like the, the uh, vault of King's College Chapel, this vast structure of stone that is actually held in place by the way, in other words, th th it's kept up there by the knowledge of engineering that it's pulled down there. And the lateral thrusts of this vast weight controlled by elegant flying buttresses at the side. And it's all in stone, of course, and these huge windows. And compare that with the primitivism of the Pantheon. It's a magnificent structure, but it's just a lump of cast concrete. Um, uh, or compare the Dome of St. Paul's with the Dome of the Pantheon. The Dome of the Pantheon is just solid. It's, it, it's just concrete and tile. The Dome of St. Paul's is this staggering 
confection of wood, of concrete, of stone, of held together because of lateral thrust again by a huge iron chain. So the extraordinary technological sophistication, and the Middle Ages had clocks, mechanical clocks, um, uh, Rome didn't. But nevertheless, in almost always, the change we are talking about begins at a perfectly identifiable moment of it starts really in the 15th century and it accelerates from there. It's what we call the Renaissance, the Reformation, the Scientific Revolution. And that change seems to me to be due, which is the origin of our idea of progress. Remember, earlier civilized, the, the idea of progress itself is a piece of progress, right? It's a new idea. Right. The first proper book on it um, is by previous generation of my teachers at Cambridge, J.P. Bury, um, in the either late 1920s or early 1930s, called The Idea of Progress. Yeah, I have Most, it, yeah. Yeah, of course you do. Most earlier civilizations had notions of either decline, things getting worse, or cyclical. The classical right. view So Hesiod, Hesiod has his uh, uh, periods from gold to silver to bronze and it's a decline it's and like then... that, that's a classic that's a classic roman and greek view um, um uh, and of course even christianity which is often described as you know introducing this notion of direction in history of course it does the idea of redemption and all the rest of it christianity is in no way about an idea of progress and certainly it's got nothing to do with this world. You remember um, the last days, which uh, uh, so many people in America seem to think come around every Tuesday. Uh, poor primitive people in America <laughs> coming around every Tuesday um, is, is, in fact, Armageddon. It's total destruction. It's the disintegration right. of right. civilization here. Who has uh, who has the cyclical view? Is that uh, uh, is that in the Far East? Yes, I mean most most of the ancient historians, or almost again, if you look at the classic accounts of politics, we need to look at politics separately. Obviously, if you look at the classic accounts of politics, and um, in both Plato and Aristotle, the two, the, the two people, you know, who give us our entire vocabulary of monarchy, aristocracy, republic, um, democracy, and all the rest of it. They saw politics as a series of successions of types of government naturally falling over and lapsing into each other. And they recognized, and I think this will come up in our discussions, that the, probably the most fragile form of government is the democratic republic. And the great miracle, and here I'm going to be polite about America, is that America has survived as long as it has. It is um, it's the only proper long surviving republic. Um, uh, I mean, obviously, one thinks of Venice and whatever, but that's a narrow, elitist, aristocratic city-state. Um, the, the survival of America... Uh, which owes, I think, everything to those reviled figures, the founding. It owes everything to two things. You can't owe everything to two things. It's got two, two tributaries. One is the skill of the founding fathers. The other is your great good fortune in having been a British colony and not a French one. And um, in other words... We'll <laughs> we'll no, get I mean, we'll get we'll we'll get to uh, colonialism no, in a second, second but the, inher yeah. the inheritance the inheritance of one the, several of the key elements of progress a relatively free society, um, a, a, a structure of uh, 
profoundly well-established property law, um, the, the inheritance of common law, and the fact that your revolution leaves all those things intact, all of those things intact, as well as your great good fortune that it happens at the right moment of the Enlightenment before the Enlightenment goes mad at the end of the 18th century. Right. So the key here is that the Constitution is written at a time when the Enlightenment, where the mainstream Enlightenment embodies a certain set of values, which then America enshrines in its Constitution. And I can't, um, um, I can't resist saying this joke I heard many years ago about uh, you know, you said how it was America's fortune that it was colonized by the British, not by the French. And uh, the joke is that an Englishman walks into a French national library and asks to see the Constitution. And the librarian says it's over there under periodicals. Yeah. Because... Well, indeed. Because, I mean, there have been five republics. Look at the history of France since the revolution. Five republics. Two. No, two, two empires, right. three monarchies. Three monarchies um, uh, and 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 uh, oh, two or three, depending on how you how how, how you count Charles the um, Tenth uh, and 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 five republics in two hundred years, and it's you know, a record of staggering formal instability. Although, of course, I would always say that France has never really changed very much since Louis the Fourteenth, and and all you all you get all you get, you know, um, are would be Louis the Fourteenth, be it Napoleon or be it President Macron, uh, you know, playing this bizarre bizarre combination of uh, of Napoleon and uh, Louis the Fourteenth. Anyway, just coming back to the business of progress, yeah. so we agree on the question of material progress. Okay. What I think we've then got to do is then to distinguish it from where we would disagree, which is progress in man's mastery of himself. Okay. I think we've developed a pretty well absolute, insofar as one can, absolute mastery of the external world. I think we have failed to do anything very much with ourselves. And in fact, I would argue in some ways that our mastery of the external world has made our mastery of ourselves worse. So I want to dis I want to draw a very, very sharp distinction between where I think we can simply shake hands and we can stop talking about it because we actually agree, which is material progress, and then to look at the much what I think is the much more difficult question, which is the idea of, if you like, political, social, human, actually, the progress of, of, of mankind, humankind um, as, as an entity. Because here, um, uh, to come up with you know, a nice little phrase, you, you, you produced a, a nice little joke about the French constitution. Let me tell you what I think of your progress project. You are presenting it as a te deo, the thanks be to God on the whole thing. It's not, it's a requiem. You are a requiem. You are the last generation, I predict, that will say these kind of things. There's a very important article in this week's British Spectator, the London Spectator, by Neil Ferg by my friend Neil Ferguson, and um, saying effectively that we are becoming China. So let's have another phrase. And this, I think, encapsulates much, though not all, of what I want to talk about. Um, at the beginning of last year, um, at the beginning of 2020, we caught a Chinese virus. I think the consequences of that Chinese virus are that we will finish up with a Chinese society. 
China not simply exported from Wuhan, which undou it undoubtedly did, and let's sort of be, you know, Trump was absolutely right, it is the Chinese virus. Let's stop pussyfooting around, um, uh, whether it came from bats or from a laboratory, there's no doubt about it. And it's also, ex it's also with deadly effect, exporting the Chinese society, and we are falling over and letting it happen. And the big question that we now want to debate is, why is this happening? What has gone wrong? So okay. let me interject there for a second. So I agree that that should be the essence of our discussion. I think I was reading a lot of articles by your former Chief uh, Justice, uh, Lord Sumption. His, no, uh, he's, he's a member of the Supreme Court. He was never president. Right. Um, he had a monstrous woman who was president in his days um, who, was, who was known as a judicial spider, and she was a catastrophe. Jonathan, right. is, uh, Jonathan, of course, the really key important thing about Jonathan is he is fundamentally a historian. He's a great right. medieval historian yeah. as well as a great lawyer. And, 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 and the one thing that I learned from him, his big concern is that this is the first time in generations certainly since the Second World War, that the government in Western societies has learned that if they can create enough of a um, sense of yeah. crisis and impending yeah. disaster, yeah. that they can then shut down the society and basically control it. And uh, his concern is that what are the future crises, real or imagined, where the government could simply exercise this kind of control? If, if it can, for example, um, convince the majority of the people in England or in the United States that climate is quote unquote an emergency, then any, sorry, existential problem, existential threat, then obviously, uh, you know, an existential threat means that anything to avoid the destruction of human existence must be permissible, right? Precisely. In yeah. other words, what we're dealing with, and again, it's all of this, dare I say, it was even better expressed because uh, Jonathan uh, uh, is, is a great mind. He's not a particularly good writer. All of this was put together patronizingly. All of this was put together much more brilliantly by George Orwell. George Orwell is about a society based on fear. And the combination of fear and the human reaction to it needs naturally leads naturally to illiberalism. It needs leads naturally to 1984. 1984 is a war, permanent war society. In other words, if you want war on the virus, we constantly use this phrase "war on," and war on the virus, war on on global drugs. Warming, yeah, global and, warming. And that, of course, then just justifies any possible suppression of freedom. Of course it does. Um, or it was put, you know, um, even better by Benjamin Franklin, that great, greatest of the phrase makers uh, of, of the founding fathers, that wonderful line about, you know, those who will sacrifice for a little security freedom end up by losing both. I mean, this is, and what we, do, what we did with, with COVID in the name of a false security we have committed the absolute sacrifice of freedom. Now, why is this so important? It is because I would argue if we go back to the founding fathers, if we go back to the constitution, if we go back to this astonishing four or 500 year run that we've had in the West, remember progress is a specifically Western phenomenon. Can we get this absolutely right? No other society has ever been founded on an idea of progress. 
Let me give you an illustration. Uh, think of China, which we constantly go on about. Oh, isn't it wonderfully wasn't it wonderfully technologically sophisticated? Yes, it was. I had the great privilege of going round the uh, First Emperor exhibition at the British Museum with one of our great sort of media personalities, Jeremy Paxman. Have we ever encountered? Oh, sure. I'm uh, yeah. Always, yeah, all, all, always grumpy, bad-tempered, and you ask the same question fourteen times and still doesn't get the answer that he wants. And we were going round this exhibition, and there were two things that struck both. Well, one of them struck me because I'm bright, and the other one struck Paxman because he's not. Um, and the, 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 the first thing that struck me was there was the chariot of the first emperor. Right, this is when 800, whatever it is, 800 AD, whenever the empire is founded. That chariot is more technologically sophisticated with its springing and whatever than anything that is made in Western Europe until the 1800s, until the phaetons of the of the regency period. But China was still making that chariot in the early 20th century rather than motor cars. Right? In other words, a technological progress had simply frozen. And the other uh, thing that Paxman got excited by, there was a very interesting, exquisite little um, uh, pen and ink or you know, brush, br brush and ink sketch that was labelled the control of public opinion. How do you freeze a society? Label the control of public opinion. Well, it showed you how you control public opinion. It showed intellectuals being buried alive in a pit at the end of a pitchfork. And in comment to that, um, Paxman said, this man, that's the first emperor, was a fucking loon, wasn't he? Well, he was, but he also creates this staggering, stable society. Ancient Egypt is the same. Um, it's, you know, it's often very difficult to tell whether an Egyptian antiquity is real, in other words, 2,000 years BC or whatever, or it's been forged 1,000 or 2,000 years later, right? Um, because the society changes so astonishingly little in that. Right. So, so we we're, have the... we're on, right, why? This is, why, why, why? Freedom is, I would argue, but of course, China is going to test this idea. The, 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 this astonishing explosion of the mind is due to two ideas. What has happened is the mind explodes and learns to control nature. How is it done? It's through an idea of freedom on the one hand, which we've seen we've thrown away. And the other idea, and this I think is at least as important, is an idea of objectivity that there is such a thing as truth and that it is testable and that it is outside yourself and that you, the first thing you have to do is to learn to accept that there is that thing outside yourself which is unchangeable. And this is what, of course, is meant by the experimental method, by the empiricism that we traditionally attribute to Francis Bacon at the beginning of the 17th century. And that process of experimentation, which has led to the, in other words, results can be falsifiable, they can be demonstrated to be untrue. That's one part of this vast revolution over nature. The other is the even more astonishing discovery. Remember, we're very peculiar creatures. And um, 
all most creatures are pattern making birds nests you know um uh, uh, what what are the thing called um uh, um um spiders webs and whatever we are unique in the number of different patterns we make and one of our most peculiar sets of patterns are the patterns of mathematics and through that process of experimentation in the 17th and 18th century, it was discovered, and nobody quite understands why, maybe there really is a God, and that would mean God was a mathematician, that there is a correspondence between this extraordinary complex set of mental patterns that we call mathematics, and this outside world, this absolutely given outside world that we can establish by the processes of experimentation. And again, Bacon has this wonderful phrase about the process of experimentation. He calls it putting nature to the question. Now that slightly lost its entrenched meaning. What it means is torturing nature. The question is the French for, we were talking about the difference between England and France. In France, the use of torture in criminal law until the revolution was so common that it was simply referred to as la question. And all the examining magistrate needed to do was to note one, two, and three in the margin of the sheet. That was the instruction <coughs> as to the number of wedges that were to be driven uh, to your lower leg, whether you contused it, whether you broke it, or whether you shattered it. So submitting nature to the question, torturing nature through the experiment, which the most recent triumph, of course, is the COVID vaccine. Um, but it depends on the acknowledgement of that outward nature and the difference between man, subjective, man, objective, the objective world outside. Now, we've not only thrown away by imitating China on the abolition of freedom, lockdown, quite deliberately imitating China. I mean, our scientists here, um, the, the, the Neil Ferguson, not the real Neil Ferguson, but this awful mock mathematician at Imperial College who happily spells his Christian name differently, actually said, we got the idea from China. We actually saw the Italians borrowing it, and then we realized we could do it. And it's monstrous. But the other thing we've got from China, we have had a cultural revolution. What woke is, woke is a version of a cultural revolution. It we'll is, get to that in a second. We'll get to that. Yeah. Just, just, just so that we put the two ideas yeah. very clearly there. Yeah. There's the idea of freedom and there is the idea of, of objectivity. And what I would argue is both of them, with astonishingly close to each other, and I think there are reasons for why both have happened together, um, have come under acute attack. And that immediately undercuts not simply um, our political progress, not simply our social progress, it threatens utterly fundamentally the continuance of our mastery of the universe as well. In other words, the entire edifice that you're talking about, rather than standing, you know, like some magnificent Egyptian temple on these great pillars, turns out, like Egyptian temples, to be floating on mud. <laughs> Well, that was a wonderful opening, and I agree with some of that. Let me start with the whole business about a requiem to human progress. Human progress, the project and my writings are, uh, I think they are written in terms of gratitude for what came before, an appreciation of where we are. But I'm not Pollyannish 
in a sense of thinking that this is the best world that we could possibly live in. And also, I'm not, uh, uh, I'm not determinist. I do not believe that uh, there is some higher power that ensures that, you know, 100 years from now or even 50 years from now, things will be better than they are today. In other words, I fully ac accept that the world 50 years from now will be a reflection of decisions made by individual people and whether they um, continue to embrace what you and I actually agree are the primary drivers or the primary driver behind human progress, which was the flourishing of human freedom sometime in the second half of the uh, second millennium first in Western Europe and then in the European offshoot. So the, 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 the essence of freedom is absolutely vital. I, would, I understand what you mean by objectivity, um, the, the, the understanding that there is a physical objective world out there, but to simplify it for our audience could be to say free speech. In other words, yeah. the ability, yeah. the ability yeah. No. You, you disagree. The, 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 the point, well, the, let me just explain what I mean, just in case I'm, I've said something that may happen to be true, but, but I misspoke. In a sense, the essence or, or the, the fundamental reason why freedom has to be accompanied by free speech is for intellectuals, academics, scientists, inventors to be able to interact with the physical world and come to the truth. The, the, the point being that you need people to be able to say, the sun is in the center of the solar system and the world revolves around it. So it's the interaction between the objective world and the ability to explore it free of uh, inquisition. That is the key. That's what I'm... Free of that's what I, free, of, free, free of and dogma. free of dogma. So that's what I meant okay. when I said. Yes, but you see, I think it is. I still think that freedom of speech in itself doesn't explain the process. That 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 what was that, that my argument about objectivity about right. a test for truth. I mean, you can come up with all sorts of vague guff about the truth will act. You know, we have this, this conventional notion that the truth, the truth will win. The overwhelming evidence of human history is that the truth doesn't win. The easiest thing is to purvey lies. And, and, you know, the whole of, we can, if we want to be polite, we can call them myths. Myths of religion, myths of virgin births, myths of myths of what Muhammad or some another, you know, some multi-armed Indian god is supposed to have done, and um, and these these are myths, and they can have immense. Let's also give them credit; they can have immense social utility. They can also do vast damage. They frequently create astonishing beauty. They belong in the realm of poetry. You know, much of the Christian Bible, the Christian Judeo-Christian Bible, is some of the most staggering poetry and imagery that has ever been created and has produced you know, astonishing uh, traditions of, of, of beauty. We've left beauty, by the way, completely out of it because it's manifestly clear, uh, if you look at modern art, that there's been no progress in beauty whatsoever. But that's, 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 that's a completely different... I, 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 completely can't, I can't disagree with that. Yeah, yeah. yeah there's, that, that's, that's a completely different matter. But I think this... this 
this notion of the putting nature to the inquisition, the that, in other words, merely people debating in itself doesn't necessarily get you very far. You need, because that wonderful phrase of T.S. Eliot, mankind, I'm sorry, he was terribly sexist, mankind cannot stand too much reality, uh, is true. You need something that forces people to confront it. Dr. Johnson had that marvellous phrase when he was dealing with the guff of Bishop Berkeley, who denied the existence of material reality. He said, kick a stone. You need that test, that kick the stone test, that sense of the of, of, of the world that resists you. Um, and one of the things that 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 I think is frightening, uh, and this is this is the big one of the big paradox. There's much of what we're talking about now, Marion, is paradox, right? In other words, that progress itself has turned out to be its own undoing. Please explain on that. Um, because what it seems to me to be is the idea of reality. We have lost a sense of reality, and we've lost it for two reasons. The first is the staggering nature of technological progress. When I was a boy, um, the standard way in which um, most, most middle-class men, only middle-class men in Europe had motor cars, the way they spent their Sunday afternoon was dressed in filthy overalls and covered in oil, crawling underneath a car which had half broken down the previous week. In other words, everybody sort of understood how a car worked. Now a car is driven by a computer and it even unlocks itself if you raise an eyebrow. Now, this is a world which no ordinary person comprehends at all. The new technology might just as well be a miracle. A handful of people actually understand how it works. Now, this divorce from, as it were, cause and what we've done, the old idea, the old idea of objectivity depends very powerfully on cause and effect. Dr. Johnson, you kick a stone, action, how? Cause and effect. What we have done is virtually to remove the notion of causation. You press a button, and the, you, know, you press a button, and what do you do? Well, you don't even press a button now. You 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 glance or do do that on your iPhone. Uh, the lights come on in your house. The central heating turns itself up. The air conditioning cuts to silent. You know, and and you sort of know what's going on, but you actually don't. And the most devastating area of this is the idea of virtual reality, of what we are doing now. The fact that we can be talking to each other across 4,000 miles, um, that we can, as, as it were, simultaneously, that we can maintain a conversation, that we have the, you asked me where I was, the illusion of our shared space and whatever, which equally, of course, you could be replaced by a bot and I would be very little the wiser, except I'd occasionally wonder why it was being cleverer than usual, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 okay, but why is, that, why, is that, why is that bad? Why is the fact because, that because, I don't know how to fix a car, but I can spend my time doing something else like talking to you, why is that a bad thing? No, the, the, it, all it does, as I said, it means that people live and believe in miracles. Modern technology is nearer to a miracle, a religious miracle, 
okay. but he did to an old-fashioned motor car. Okay. And the belief in miracles is catastrophic. I agree. If you, if you believe in miracles, you believe you will do anything. You will do anything that that God tells you to. And the other thing, the other great problem is this world of virtual reality that we are creating, the virtual friend, uh, the, uh, the virtual unfriending, all of this. It's catastrophic consequences. Again, one of the things we don't do enough, Marion, we don't teach people the great classics, the, the, the great texts of thought. And we mentioned some of the figures. We've talked about Plato, we've talked about Aristotle, um, uh, we've, we've, we've talked about the founding fathers, you know, the greatest, some of the greatest essays on politics ever written are, are the Federalist Papers. I mean, they're, they're astonishing achievements of the human spirit. Well, one of the great, I, and often the ideas themselves are put with a brilliant compression. One of the most brilliant pieces of compression is Plato in the Republic, when he talks about the image of the cave. And he describes, when he describes people who are not, as it were, fully adult, he talks of them as not grasping reality. This phrase again, the same phrase as Eliot. And he uses this wonderful similitude, this wonderful model, in which what he's really doing with obviously the very limited technological capacity of ancient Greece, he's talking about a modern cinema. He says, imagine people in, held inside a dark, darkened cave, um, uh, and they've never seen the outside world. And so they've got no idea and they're not allowed to look at each other. All they can do is to look at this screen. And on the screen, there are projected the images of puppets which are enlarged with a flame behind them. Well, this is a description of what we are doing now. It's a description of the cinema. It's a description of the social media. And it is virtual reality is the destruction of everything that's really real. It breaks down that relationship of causation and cause and effect. It leaves the world open to neo-religion, neo-miracles, neo-persecution, neo-martyrdom. And um, it, it, it seems to me that the, 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 what technology is doing, in other words, and this is, this is the last big possibly the last big starky idea there, some more may come up. It's taking us back bizarrely to the Middle Ages. What is really striking about the patterns of modern culture is how very similar they are to the Middle Ages, far from being progressive. I mean, again, if you look at something like Steve Pinker, uh, you'll be very familiar with this. And Steve argues very interestingly, you know, isn't it wonderful how much we've progressed as, as humanity? Even into the last century, people are executed by public torture. Uh, people would never do that now. This is absolutely shocking. And then five minutes later, he was almost subject to cancellation, which is the modern equivalent of burning alive. I know I've been through it. And, uh, uh, and this seems to me to illustrate that we are at least as wicked as we ever were given half the chance and given the neo-religious element and woke is a neo-religion is a cultural revolution exactly like the monstrousness of Mao Zedong's China so in other words we've got two viruses from China, with three viruses we've got the Wuhan virus with flu we've got Chinese flu we've got the destruction of freedom in the name of security 
And we finally got the destruction of, of the whole of this enlightenment scientific revolution, world of cause and effect of objectivity in the name of this new religion of feeling social justice. The moment I would say you put an adjective in, an adjective in front of justice, you destroy it. There is justice and justice is justice. And the moment you call it social justice, you've turned it into a monstrous perversion. Yes, I think that was uh, Hayek's observation that the word social is meant to precede the word it's meant to negate. That is absolutely have you have you by the way have have you met him? I didn't meet Hayek. No, no, no. Hayek Hayek was um Hayek was really out of it long before I got involved in all this kind of thing. I knew his disciples, uh, and there was profound impact uh on circles in which I moved in from time to time. Even in LSE, you know, my academic post was at the London School of Economics, and there there were uh, there, there were extraordinary. It, it was in many ways a rather wonderful place because there there, there are two completely well, several traditions, but but there, there are those who are the inheritors of the webs of of, of Bernard Shaw, uh, the standard Fabian socialist tradition there, uh, which of course is very much this managed society that we are talking about. Uh, yes. they had no belief, no belief in freedom. Whatsoever, and and indeed the webs, you know, adored Soviet communism. I mean, there is the famous uh, two volume. I actually have have the. I shouldn't have it, but it's somehow finished up on my shelves. I have the first of the presentation set from the webs to LSE uh, volume, um, in which it's the famous. It's the famous second edition. Um, in the first edition had Soviet communism and new civilization question mark, and then when they went back and should have seen, you know. The, the purges and the gulags and all the rest of it, they eliminated the question mark. And what is so interesting about that, talking again about religion and all of this, uh, is that they actually specifically describe the nomenclatura of the Communist Party as being like the Jesuits. They see it as a religious force and they see it as, as a, you know, as, 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 as a new, uh, as it were, a purified, uh, purified elite. So there was that tradition, but there was also the wildly different um, tradition at LSE, uh, which was a Hayekian tradition. Uh, there was a tra tra tradition of serious monetarism, um, the, uh, and it's you know, no accident, whatever, that the economics department of LSE uh, supplied at least, you know, succession of major officials of the Bank of England uh, and so on. Uh, and there was also in the government department um, a direct inheritance from Hayek. So it was a remarkable, remarkable, uh, remarkable brain. So I'm going to take a few minutes um, to push back against some of the things that you have said. Um, I was trying to keep notes uh, and I'll do it in the most loving way I'm capable of doing. One of the most obvious ways that one could say Starkey or wrong is that you are that you are potentially exhibiting what every generation exhibits, which is to say uh, uh, we were preceded by heroes, but we are in the midst and followed by uh, dwarves. dwarves. Except you're not allowed to say that anymore. <laughs> That's why I stopped. I didn't vertically know what challenged that persons. Get this exactly. right. Vertically challenged persons. And, um, and that every generation sees itself as standing on the cusp of history. Um, but 
you know, the Romans felt like that. Cato the Elder kept on talking about, you know, the effeminacy of his contemporaries and how Rome was threatened by the lack of morals and martial virtue. And this was, you know, this was hundreds of years before Rome reached its peak. So I, I think that there is, there is the issue that we need to discuss about whether whether this is really something different or whether we are simply exhibiting a typical uh, human impulse which, uh, again, is a declinist in perspective. I mean, Thomas Babington Macaulay famously said, why should we predict nothing but destruction ahead of us with nothing but improvement behind us? So that's one topic that we need to look at. Secondly, I would say it goes without saying that what they try to do to Pinker and what they did do to you was absolutely vile and horrific. Um, and it is also true in my mind that it's very different from burning somebody on the cross. In other words, if the best that the new religious fanatics can do is to cancel somebody as opposed to actually burn them alive, that in itself is a certain degree of progress. A progress, a progress that we see in other areas. Men in Western societies no longer slap their wives left and right. Uh, we no longer torture people, by and large. In the, the, there were some rumors about tortures in the early 2000s as a result of 9-11, but you know, we no longer require torture in uh, prisons, things like that. We no longer expose children on the hillside. Oh, come on, come on, come on. This really won't so, Look okay. at look at look at the right. Let look at the the pre-trial treatment of somebody who is not an admirable human being, but of Ghislaine Maxwell. That is a scandal and a disgrace and a blot on the face of American justice. It's monstrous that somebody who has never been tried and condemned is treated like that and subject to that degree of psychological torture and public humiliation. I mean, you the. I'm sorry, I really do disagree radically on this. The motives of those who tried to do to Pinker and did to me is exactly the same as the mob that burned. And of course, I'm fortunate and Pinker is fortunate. We're financially secure. People's livelihoods are destroyed. Those who were foolish enough to live in the social media are subject to the, the, the most hideous forms of, of social pressure and, and moral abuse. I see very little evidence that relations within marriage have much improved, apart from the fact now that women are rather better at beating up men than they used to be. Uh, though, of course, there are always warrior wives, you know, read, 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 read in Chaucer. And again, so to, to, to go back to the whole business of declinism. Um, I am in no sense a declinist, I'm sure, as I illustrated what I was saying there. Um, what is new about woke, it is, it is telling you what it is. It is explicitly an attack on the Enlightenment. Okay. It is explicitly attacked. So when I am not imagining this. I believe, you know, I'm, re I'm a very old, I, we're talking about history. I believe in historical evidence. And I believe in listening very seriously when people tell me why they are doing something. And the proponents of woke and Black Lives Matter and whatever tell me very clearly what they are doing. They tell me that Western civilization is a monstrous perversion. 
that the source of all the world's ills comes from being white, that the notion that there is a thing called objective truth is a peculiar perversion of this white Western civilization and must be destroyed, I do them the credit of believing them. And uh, I think that they probably, in their own bizarre twilight minds, think they're even doing good. But it corresponds, it corresponds precisely to earlier movements of destruction. In many ways, I would argue that uh, it corresponds to the burning of the Library of Alexandria. Or, we're talking about Rome, the introduction of a kind of social virus which destroys a society. I think what we're on, this is why I found the whole notion of COVID and what's going on now so interesting. There been, we're talking about the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire is the subject to probably the greatest piece of psycho history ever written, which is Gibbon's Decline and Fall. I have read it. I enjoyed it very much. Amazing uh, book. And uh, what does he see as the essential reason for the fall of Rome? Christianity. A new system of thought that destroys the values of the old. The old Roman, the old Roman values, the ones we were talking about, Cato the Elder with the aggressive militarism, uh, the, uh, the, the, the furious assertion of, of moral, political, intellectual, military force are suddenly destroyed um, by what Nietzsche correctly, in my view, describes as a religion for slaves. That's Christianity. Christianity is at the source of so much of what's gone wrong. In particular, its elevation of the idea of the victim. You know, suddenly, uh, in the new world of woke, the important thing is not to be in control. It's not to be somebody capable of controlling your emotions. It's not somebody who's important of being successful. It is a victim. And the order of priority in woke is the order of victimhood. There was a magnificent joke in the old world of Irish politics about the Irish being the most oppressed people ever. The competition to be the most victimized, called mope, the world of mope. Um, and what, what woke is about is about mope. It is victimhood. Well, of course, the ultimate victim is a God who dies in agony upon a, upon a cross. And, and the idea that, you know, that becomes the model, what you're supposed to do. Why Nietzsche calls it the religion of slaves. And, and of course, once Christianity, well, sorry, it, once Rome absorbed, and it only absorbs it very, very partially, but that, if you like, destroys the raison d'etre of a society. And I think that we are going through something very, very similar at the moment. Um, so, and I think, again, you know, it's, it is perfectly clear that the Chinese understand this. The, you know, what we're dealing with now isn't the world of Mao Zedong. It's the world of leaders of China who were studied at American and British universities, are distinguished intellectually, have spent time in our society and understand its profound weakness and I think how it's destroying itself and are taking calculated measures to bring about that destruction. And you know, until we begin to realize this is what is happening, that, that, the, that you know, the, 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 again, 
the, the that astonishing efflorescence of the West um, is, of course, uh, and that's what it is, Western Europe. They you know, used to be the paper at Cambridge. Uh, they just bluntly called it the expansion of Western Europe because you know, the history of the world, the history of a, or an idea of the world history is simply the British Empire, the American Empire and globalisation. You know, that's, that's what it is. Um, but it was precisely because there were no rivals because we had that effortless technological superiority, that, you know, be which begins in begins actually with the conquest of Latin America, um, uh, uh, and you know whatever it is, a couple of hundred thuggish Spanish troops, um, uh, and 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 the entire might of the Incas and the Aztecs collapsing before them, or the British in India in the 18th century, where you know these vast armies of tens, hundreds of thousands collapse before two or three thousand european troops but suddenly we have an alternative okay we have so, China, uh, a country that embodies the, it is the deliberate antithesis it okay. is let me let me try to see where we agree and disagree after the second round i agree with you uh, about the importance of the enlightenment uh, objectivity in the rise of the west I also agree with you that right now we are experiencing a bit of a retreat from the Enlightenment. We are questioning, yeah. well, well, I mean, the objective, you know, we are experiencing a, a retreat from... The, gen the education well, of an entire generation is being perverted. There is also, as I said, this astonishing, devastating alliance between a sophisticated technology and the rot of the mind. So we are experiencing retreat from the Enlightenment, um, which is problematic. Obviously, part of postmodernism is trying to undermine the concept of objectivity, that sort of thing. I get that. Um, uh, with regard to technology, and, and, and it worries me. I mean, part of the reason why I thought we, ha we would have this conversation, and part of the reason why I'm writing more about the dangers to human progress is precisely because I think it is rooted in the Enlightenment values and object and and. Objective truth. Objective truth. It drives me crazy. It drives me crazy when I hear people on TV say things like my truth. I completely reject that. There is either truth or falsehood and all that jazz. And we are in agreement on technology. Let me posit to you. And this goes again to how a conservatively minded person may just about every technology I can think of has been seen as a major threat and a major problem when it emerged. My question is, what makes you think that Twitter and Facebook and things like that are going to be around in, let's say, 20 years time? Is it possible that some of us, like myself, will realize, or people like myself will realize that actually Twitter and Facebook are detrimental to your well-being and will, will leave. I left Facebook and I never had a, a Twitter account. Maybe other people will do that too. Um, so, you know, it takes time for people to get accustomed to new technology and figure out whether it's actually a net contributor to their well-being or not. Who knows? Maybe we are just living through a particularly... Um, uh, unsettling period, but that too will come to an end once we know how to interact with this virtual world. It will be lovely if that may be true. Come on, the last thing I would ever do, Marion, is to pretend to be a prophet. There is nothing sillier 
than a historian. I've learned that, yeah, I've learned that in my own life, yeah. There's nothing sillier than a historian pretending to be a prophet. As you said, history is purely retrospective. Um, you, you cannot know the result until it's happened. Uh, you know, the, again, T.S. Eliot, the wonderful phrase, only in retrospection selection can we say that was the day. Or the famous one in Hegel, the Isle of Minerva flying at dusk. You know, it happens once it's over. So, it's, of course, I can't prophesy. All I can say is that signs at the moment are peculiarly bad. I never got very excited about television and, and so on, and because it didn't seem to me... Every, you know, Television is a box sitting out there. Um, it's, in a, it's in a living room. It was usually watched communally and so on. And it was a quaint form of social experience. I mean, my first experience of television, indeed the very first time I'd seen it, was actually the coronation of 1953. I'd never seen it before. And that was, a, that was an extraordinary collective experience. And television in many ways, I think, was the antithesis of what we're talking about. Television was a very collect, in, in the, certainly in Britain, very few television channels. Everybody watched the same things. It was a collective experience. What's going on now is a form of the social media or a form of acute atomization. And it's no, it's no accident that the Chinese love it, because, of course, what you've always had in China is a profoundly atomistic society, um, which it in turn lends itself to easy dictatorship. And as Burke constantly points out, it is the creation, and indeed as the founding fathers well understood, it's the creation of the small platoons, the median groups of, of association, of friendship, of family, of trade, of industry, of locality that act as the barriers. Of, of, of tyranny. It's why, again, talking about the, the ancient Greeks, the ancient Greeks saw a very close connection between democracy and dictatorship because the frag mass fragmentation of a society la lends very easily. You know, as you see with the French Revolution on the one hand and Napoleon on the other, or the British Revolution and, 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 and Cromwell. So I think there's, 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 there are very, very peculiar and very peculiar alarming features of the current wave of technology. And in that same article, uh, sorry, in that same edition of the British Spectator, I am not a shareholder uh, of the British Spectator, there's another very impressive article by Lionel Shriver, who is an American... Uh, I like her very much, yes. Superb, talking about virtual currency and saying that, you know, we're in this extraordinary world in which our financial management is is again savoring of pure fantasy the 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 trillions and trillions and trillions that that are that are being thrown on an already rapidly expanding economy in america or indeed in my own country and in which governments seem to be adopting with quantitative easing, something like a cyber currency. You know, they are cyber currencies. They're fiat currencies, and the, the, uh, the, the record of all fiat currencies um, uh, without anchor is a very frightening one. So all sorts of phenomena seem to me to coincide. But the thing, that's, the, the thing that's worrying, and again, it's the argument of Rome, um, it is that 
that we've got this series of internal problems in which you know, our very technological strength may be turning against us, which is the equivalent of Christianity. Let's, let's just say the equivalent of the internal virus, combined with the equivalent of the barbarian at the gates. That's China. Except that what is terrifying about China is that we've given China the best of our technology. You know, the insanity of the West policy, and particularly America, in farming out its sophisticated technological, you know, the fact Apple manufactures in China, which means the Chinese can simply unpick everything. Well, whether the, the, the question whether the Chinese, uh, who are very good at duplicating and mimicking Western technology, can also produce their own at a step it's higher, in, in an atmosphere of no free speech, uh, in an atmosphere of no free inquiry, that's something that the future will show. But I want to, I want to circle back. You see, yes. I think you put your finger on it. I, I desperately hope we're right. You and I are right. That that, that that will mean that they can't do it. But you see, they are not fools. These are not Mao Zedong. Mao Zedong was a poet, right? With the he was a Hitler. Hitler's an art. They're all artists, you know. They want to remake society uh, in the same way you would a, a clay pot uh, or a temple. The modern leaders of China are not. They're brilliant engineers. They know how things work. And what I suspect is going on in China is in the same way it is in some aspects of Chinese commerce. You know, things like Alibaba wouldn't have happened if there hadn't been within the interstice, within this, this corset of, of, of absolute control, huge areas of commercial freedom, right? And I think that what the Chinese may be learning to do is to give, as it were, sufficient space technologically within areas of technology that people are allowed to be creative. And again, why is the Chinese elite sending its brightest people to the West? Um, so you know, they, 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 what, what will be the most terrifying thing, Mary, will be a managed freedom. That is, in other words, we're not really talking, and I'm not talking about, um, I'm not talking about Orwell's nightmare vision. I'm not talking about a boot put on the face of mankind forever. I'm talking about something much more frightening. For the first time, we have the well, first time probably since the Flavian emperors, uh, we have the prospect of intelligent dictatorship. Jonah Goldberg likes to say that when dictatorship comes to America, it will not be wearing a jackboot, but a smiley face. Which is <laughs> uh, very interesting. So uh, one, one thing which is very interesting, I, I never heard you being so um, so in love with freedom in any of your of our previous encounters. And that pleases me very much because that's where we certainly meet uh, on, on that subject. Now, you started at the beginning of this podcast by saying that what you wanted to talk about was... Uh, human progress in terms of politics, social society, and then uh, uh, human progress. So I think I disagree with you uh, in large part on human progress or rather humanities progress. I think that we are actually on average gentler than our ancestors. 
even when we do terrible things like cancel perfectly legitimate uh, opinions and perfectly legitimate scholars, at least, thank God, we don't, uh, you know, put them in dungeons and make them starve to death. Secondly, we talked about social aspect of human freedom, human that, progress. That's merely a technological detail. But really, in the, be, the grand scheme of things, it is a mere technological detail. Uh, the second thing was we, we talked about society and how it is being pulled apart by um, social media wokeism. Very important. I think it's driving uh, a tremendous wedge between the races, certainly in this country, which has a much more checkered uh, racial history than, than Great Britain. And it, it is a pot potential uh, threat uh, in the future, especially since wokeism is now being introduced into schools in the United and States in and, and, in, and, and, and in Congress. And, yeah. and, and to that is attached this new idea of equity, which is basically a proportional representation uh, when it comes to in, in successful social and economic fields, which has its own problems and uh, with which I obviously fundamentally disagree with. But I want to end uh, and, and, and that should and that is where we we have accomplished something. We have identified problems which are threatening human freedom. And, and for that, I'm grateful. I want to finish by talking about democracy or politics, which is the last aspect you identified that you wanted to talk about um, in our conversation about human progress and what is happening to our democracies and to the political system. What do you think? Uh, one thing I keep thinking about is that when it comes to technology and when it comes to um, information and so on, I, you know, there are so many ways in which I think that we could progress. There is almost infinite number of ways in which we can um, create materially a better world. But when it comes to politics, we are really still stuck on that on that general Aristotelian model of tyranny at one end and anarchy on the other. So tell me... That, that, so talk to me There's about that. There's a reason that. for this. There's a reason for this. It's called humanity. I mean, you, 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 you seem to see this as something to which there could be a, a sort of technological fix. It's not. It's the brute stuff of being human. And you see, I would argue something else. Um, it, you, you, you made the point about me and freedom. One of the reasons I haven't necessarily talked about freedom very much, of course, my historical expertise, um, which was a deliberate reaction against the atmosphere of my own time uh, when I was you know, a young man in the 1960s, I'm a specialist in the history of monarchies and aristocracies. Um, freedom for one, freedom for a few. Um, but what is really striking is it seems to me we are now learning an absolutely fundamental lesson, which I've been trying to preach for a very long period of time. Democracy, unless it's of that extraordinary thoroughgoing form, which was briefly practicable in the context of the quasi-agrarian societies of America around about 1800, um, uh, but vanishes in the, in, in, in the vast process of industrialization and urbanization, um, uh, is that we are learning that democracy is essentially a f purely formal. The way we are ruled is by courts. We elect monarchs. And if you actually look at how America is governed, America is governed by 
that choice, you know, a knife edge choice in both uh, with both Trump and, and and with Biden, and you then elect a monarch for a period of time. And remember, elective monarchies are very common. Uh, the Roman Empire, in many ways, was elective when it wasn't a military coup. Um, the papacy is an elective monarchy. Yours is an elective monarchy. We, oddly enough, have an elective monarchy in Britain because, of course, we've got two monarchs. Uh, we've got the queen, poor thing, and we've got the prime minister, who, just as in Japan, with the with the, the with with the Mikado and the Shogun, you have these two centers of power, one traditionalist and the other actually executive, but they're both monarchies, they're courts, with the whole process of uh, the role of women, of mistresses, of favorites, of factions, and so on. We are, we have, I think that the, 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 the bigger our societies get, the more complicated they get the more we medievalize i mean if you if you look at the prevalence of public irrational irrationalism the belief in ufos the belief um in uh, in in um in, well very many forms of environmentalism uh, the the um uh, extraordinary importance of of astrology uh, the the fact that public literature is largely rubbish like harry potter we we remedievalized if you compare the the contents of a newspaper now with a, even a mass circulation newspaper of the 1920s or 30s, you were struck by the astonishing collapse of literacy, uh, by the uh, the fact that you know what would have been a relatively small section on showbiz is now virtually the entire paper. Uh, the fact that politics is merely you know, that wonderful remark about politics being show business for ugly people never has the truth of it been more manifest. Than now, and I think this idea of remedievalization is one that I am more and more convinced of. Wokeism is a perverted religion, and um, that 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 our uh, we know with the collapse of serious political affiliation, um, the um, the, um, the 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 increasing commercialization of policies, all of these sorts of things. Well, well so is so is extremist environmentalism. The the religious yeah, impulse, no, I would agree completely. The, the, the religious impulse in in the human mind, the religion, yeah, the religious impulse in the human mind and a desire to be part of something greater and find meaning in some sort of a heroic pursuit. Uh, or, or, or the worship, the worship or, of rather silly young people like Greta Thunberg, you know, child saints or ancient sages yeah. like David Attenborough, uh, you know, prosing on like St. Simon's Stylites. If only his column will go up his ass, I would be very pleased. You know, just, just absurd. Um, but they're medieval. Nature and that's worship. that's the retreat. That's the retreat it, from the Enlightenment. It's a great it, danger. It, I mean, it, I. But, in the, but you see what I mean. In the area after area that you look at, there is this this is is a kind of reclouding. It's, it's as though it's as though a cloud has suddenly come across a bright sky, and that's where we are now. Shadow. Well, David, I can't say that's the most optimistic uh, or positive uh, ending to a uh, podcast I ever had. However, I have decided some uh, weeks ago that uh, the, the, the problems that are facing 
human progress, the future of human progress, that the retreat from the Enlightenment is real enough for me to start having conversations with uh, uh, great scholars such as yourself who have identified these problems, understand them, help me think through them and also inform our audience. So perhaps we can agree on the following. Human progress is real. We have accomplished tremendous amount in the last 500 years, if you want, certainly since uh, the Enlightenment in the 18th century. But there is no guarantee that things will work out. And the fundamental need in our society right now is to understand and be able to talk about objective reality in an atmosphere of freedom. If we lose that, we are well finished. Lost. Well lost. Thank you very much, David. And thank you for giving me the freedom to speak. My pleasure. Okay.